today on Peace Talks Radio, the Dalai Lama in our times. Taking care more others, ultimately you get benefit because your future, your happiness depends on them. The 14th Dalai Lama, the spiritual and political leader of Tibet, who in 1959 fled his homeland, which had been invaded and has since been occupied by the Chinese. From his exile in India, he has led his nation in a nonviolent struggle to regain autonomy and respect from the Chinese. He's won the Nobel Peace Prize and draws huge crowds wherever he speaks around the world. People will often come and ask him for his blessing, and he says, blessings come from yourself. There's nothing I can give you that you don't have inside yourself already. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we'll hear from Dalai Lama talks and interviews, and we'll speak with two men who have spent much time with him and written books about him, Robert Thurman and Pico Iyer. Stay tuned. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we look at peacemakers throughout history and discuss strategies for resolving conflict nonviolently in our lives every day. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. In April of 2008, in Seattle's biggest football stadium, over 50,000 people of all faiths and no faith, of all ethnicities and orientations, gathered on a rare sunny day to nearly fill up the stands. They didn't come to see an NFL showdown. They didn't come to hear the Rolling Stones. They came to see a little 72-year-old man in maroon and yellow robes sit in a chair on a canopied stage in one of the end zones. They came to hear this man speak broken English for about 40 minutes. They came to hear Tenzin Jatsu, a Tibetan monk, talk about peace, nonviolence, and compassion. Whenever we face problems, different interests... Disagreement, the realistic method is nonviolent dialogue. That's the only way. Tenzin Yatsu is known to most as the 14th Dalai Lama, the exiled head of state and spiritual leader of Tibet. Basically, today's world is not like 19th century, 20th century's world. Today's world is something new reality. That means every part of the world heavily interconnected. So under these circumstances, according to this new reality, the very concept of we and they no longer there. Whole world should consider part of you. Therefore, according to that reality, concept of war is outdated. In Tibet, the Dalai Lamas are believed to be enlightened beings who are reborn in order to serve humanity. Back in 1937, the man on the Seattle stage was two years old, growing up in a farming family in northeastern Tibet. The 13th Dalai Lama had died four years earlier and a search party had been dispatched by the Tibetan government to find the new incarnation of their leader. They found their way to this particular village and this particular child. As a test, they offered this child a host of items to choose from, some belonging to the recently deceased Dalai Lama. You say this is yours? 
What else belongs to you? As dramatized in the Martin Scorsese film Kundun, the child picked the items that belonged to the 13th Dalai Lama. This is mine. Within two years of his discovery, the young boy had been declared the 14th Dalai Lama. In 1950, Chinese troops invaded Tibet. Cultural and spiritual sites were destroyed. Over time, over a million Tibetans would be killed. Also in 1950, at the age of 15, the 14th Dalai Lama assumed political power for Tibet. He was still a teenager when meeting with Chinese communist leader Mao Zedong to negotiate a peace in 1955. But still, the Chinese military flooded into Tibet. We will be moving Chinese families into Tibet territory. Farmers, 40,000. A revolt has broken out in the east. We have decided that the Tibetan army must be used against the Kampa guerrillas. I will not approve that. You have bombed on peaceful people. It is my job to deal with reactionaries. No, we are peace-loving people. We are here to heal the people of Tibet. You need reform. We are here to liberate you. No, Buddha is our physician, General Tan. He will heal us. Wisdom and compassion will set us free. You cannot liberate me, General Tan. I can only liberate myself. By 1959, I see a safe journey. He was forced into exile into India. I see a safe return. Since 1959, the Dalai Lama has led his people from his exile, never giving up hope that one day he would make that safe return to his homeland. Along the way, he has won a Nobel Peace Prize for his determined stance for a nonviolent solution to the dispute with China. And he has traveled the globe, cheerfully meeting appreciative crowds and journalists, all curious to hear his simple wisdom and learn how he manages to stay so cheerful and determined in light of the suffering his people have endured over the years at the hands of the Chinese. Charlie Rose quizzed him on PBS in 2005. How do we have compassion in a world that is so brutal? Mm -hmm. I think compassion, uh, we should not look just word compassion just, just that way. I think the compassion is important because more compassionate mental attitude there, you can see everything more better, more clearly. Because compassion <laughs> brings us some kind of calm mind. Yeah. And through calm mind, you can see the picture more, uh, more clearly. Much sort of emotion, such as uh, hatred, anger, attachment, then uh, your n normal mind or calm mind, uh, not there, no longer there, too much sort of hatred, too much anger, or too much attachment. So uh, these uh, affected emotion, uh, then you see, become obstacle to see the reality. So then, with these emotions, the, your action become unrealistic. Therefore, these, I think nobody wants trouble. But, but there are a lot of trouble. Why? Man-made trouble. Why? Our approach is not realistic. This is my view. So therefore, 
the compassion bring us a certain deeper sort of uh, value. Uh, firstly, open our mind, and that brings more inner strength, more self-confidence, and that brings more calm mind. And through that way, whether, polit whether in politics or economy or education or anything. Today we'll hear excerpts from talks and interviews with the Dalai Lama, as well as conversations with two authors, Pico Iyer and Robert Thurman, who have both spent much time with the Dalai Lama and who have each written a book about him. Robert Thurman is professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist Studies in the Department of Religion at Columbia University and the president of Tibet House U.S., a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and promotion of Tibetan civilization. He has been a personal friend of the Dalai Lama for over 40 years. His book, Why the Dalai Lama Matters, His Act of Truth as the Solution for China, Tibet, and the World, was published in 2008 by Atria Books. Dr. Thurman spoke to us from the Tibet House in New York City. Our interviewer, Suzanne Kreider, started by asking him why he thought tens of thousands of people of all faiths and backgrounds from a city would come to hear the Dalai Lama. It's a good question. He is a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, and people are hungering for peace around the planet. Just like people who were Jewish or Muslim might go to hear Bishop Tutu, so people who are Christians or secularists or whatever will go to hear the Dalai Lama, and it doesn't matter that he's, he's a Buddhist, just like Tutu is a Christian. It is rather the Dalai Lama's reputation and his presence which really does speak for peace. I think he's a major world leader of peace. He speaks about how the 21st century war is obsolete and conflict should be resolved through dialogue. And you can even talk to your enemies and people will not necessarily stay your enemy if you figure out what's their problem and what can you do about it other than a fight with them. I think that um, the different world leaders who are making wars and are being domineering and are seeking to conquer things are not succeeding and they're causing more and more devastation and trouble and, and violence and so on. So people are kind of sick of that worldwide. And uh, someone like the Dalai Lama is someone who offers a different perspective. And he does it very articulately and very intelligently. So the fact that he himself is Buddhist, I think, is less important than the fact that he stands for peace. You know, he speaks for peace in a universal way. And also he, in his ethical prescriptions and arguments and his his um, advocacy of compassion, he purposely does dissociate himself from this being because of a specific set of religious beliefs. He does it because of the basic human nature that he argues is our nature, and also the practicality and the impracticality, rather, of violence and so forth today. So for all these reasons, I think he draws these very, very large crowds, which shows that there is a great appetite for peace on our planet. Pico Iyer is a journalist and the author of several books, including The Lady and the Monk and The Global Soul. His articles appear in magazines such as Harper's, Time, and the New York Review of Books. In 1974, Pico Iyer was 17 when his father introduced him to the Dalai Lama. He's written about the Dalai Lama for three decades now, including his 2008 book, The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama, from Knopf Publishers. Mr. Iyer lives in Japan, but talked with Suzanne Kreider from the studios of KCRW in Santa Monica, California. Pico, you write in your book, The Open Road, about the different roles that the Dalai Lama has in his life. Talk about some of those roles and which one you think is most important or inspires people the most. 
Well, I think the one that's most important is not necessarily the most inspiring because I think that's the monastic role. And I think the core of him and his sense of his identity is genuinely as a simple monk. And everything he does in the world and outside the world springs out of his philosophical and monastic uh, foundations. Uh, But I think part of the fascination of the Dalai Lama for me is that, of course, he has, as you said, myriad roles. He's the a de facto head of state. He's the head of Tibetan Buddhism. He is a monk. He's an amateur scientist. He's a regular person. And yet all of them are absolutely interconnected in him, which is, of course, perfectly consistent with his vision of interconnectedness. So when he goes to the White House, say, or talks to the European Parliament, when he's in the midst of these very real and real politique situations, he's speaking as a monk. And I think he's the one political leader on our planet who brings to the realm of politics, which is such a divisive us-versus-them world, this much more spacious and much more selfless and far-sighted vision of a monk. And at the same time, he's the only monk that I know of who adheres very rigorously to scientific principles and who actually famously says that as if new research finds the Buddha's own teachings to be outdated or incomplete, then throw out the Buddha's teachings. Science always trumps faith in, in his vision of things. And so... When I travel with him, it's interesting to see how he very quickly goes between worlds. He'll talk high philosophy to some monks and he'll step outside the auditorium and meet a little girl and instantly bend down and make real human contact with her and listen to her as attentively as if he were listening to a head of state. And then he'll get into a car and go across town and talk to a head of state. So he plays these roles in quick succession. But I think the most exciting thing is the way he pushes them together to see how each role can almost light up or liberate the others. And then among the audience, some cases, as they come to listen, Dalai Lama's talk with great expectation. That's a mistake. I have nothing to offer something very special. Just few empty words. <laughs> then... If some people have believed or view that Dalai Lama have some miracle power, that's totally nonsense. I am just one human being. The Dalai Lama addressing the crowd of over 50,000 at Seattle's football stadium, Quest Field, in April 2008. More now with Suzanne Kreider's interviews with journalist Pico Iyer and here, Buddhist scholar Dr. Robert Thurman. You were the very first American to ordain as a Tibetan Buddhist monk. That's right. Which means you know what it's like to renounce things that lay people take for granted. It, that's true. As a Tibetan monk, how does the Dalai Lama's lifestyle impact how he views peace? Uh, well, the Buddhist tradition has uh, argued for peace, the Buddha himself said that violence will only produce more violence. He was uh, 500 years earlier than Jesus, but they are really the same. The Beatitudes or Sermon on the Mount of the nonviolence teaching of Jesus and his injunction that people should love their enemies and, you know, turn the other cheek and this kind of thing is very similar to Buddha's injunction that uh, violence will only breed more violence, hatred will only breed more hatred, and only love can conquer hatred, and only nonviolence can conquer violence. And so as a Buddhist monk, the Buddhist monk is expected to try to live up to those ideals 
more stringently than the layperson who is able to, and just as in, the, as in the old days, that was the same for the Christian monk or nun. So uh, the Dalai Lama has like um, he's, sort of, he's more like a, a professional peace warrior, you could say, as a monk. But in, but also in Buddhism, the lay people are also expected to really work for peace and try their best to be peaceful in their own mind and uh, develop the ability to respond to injury and violence and hatred in a positive, loving, friendly, and non-reactive way. But the monk should be better at it than the layperson because they work at that, you could say, professionally. But tell us two or three things about his lifestyle that are different than a layperson's that help promote peace within him. Well, he meditates every day uh, on such themes as wisdom and compassion, seeing through the... Uh, the wisdom, using the wisdom to see through the normal fixation on opposition and on revenge and on injury and so forth, and using the compassion to see the enemy's point of view or the person who one other people might be angry with and see how they are themselves feeling unhappy and why they're misguidedly attacking you because they think they're going to get rid of you and that'll make them happy, whereas you know it will not make them happy and so on. So I think he, he meditates on these matters and uh, develops a very deep insight into the nature of the human being and he becomes more capable of not following his own impulsive reactions and rather uh, developing a loving reaction no matter what happens to him. And so through his wisdom and compassion, I think he and the specific things that he does to cultivate them through his day he's able to maintain a higher level of that, I think. And over many years, since he's the leader of a group of a community, the Tibetan Buddhist community that has been forced into exile by a very violent Chinese communist invasion of their homeland and an expropriation of their wealth and their land and imprisonment of their people and destruction of their monasteries and their um, you know, their freedom of religion and so forth, because of this, he's had a lot of practice of developing toleration of injury because they've been so injured. And um, he really does show an exemplary reaction to, in that situation. Pico R., one thing that seems to confuse people, I think, about the Dalai Lama is he's so happy in public despite all the suffering of the people of Tibet, despite all the suffering in the world. It's almost like there's not enough outrage. How do you explain that? I was traveling with him in Japan two years ago, and we were, drive, we were riding in the bullet train from Nagoya to Yokohama, and by good fortune, a journalist came into our ca carriage and asked that very question. He said, Your Holiness, you've seen 1.2 million of your people killed. You've been in exile for 50 years. Really, all you've witnessed is suffering, and yet you're most famous for your smile. How is that? And instantly, without hesitation, the Dalai Lama said, My profession. And I, I'm not sure exactly what he meant by that. There are many, many ways of, of, of taking it. But I think it may have partly to do with that monasticism, with his sense, unbreakable, that in the long term, things will work out for the better, that uh, for all the three steps backwards and the zigzags along the path, ultimately, each human is slowly moving towards a clearer understanding uh, of reality. And whenever I ask him about the Tibetan situation, he always says, short term, no hope, long term, definitely there'll, there'll be a resolution. And I think by thinking in terms of 
centuries, uh, he's not prey to the moment-by-moment convulsions that are more and more um, our masters because I think the world has accelerated and we're living in the midst of this 24-7 news cycle. And so we're almost permanently riding a, a roller coaster. And he's like a monk sitting next to the roller coaster, seeing things in a much against a much wider horizon and in a much larger context. And of course, as your question implies, it's difficult for his people, uh, though they are Buddhist, to see things in terms of centuries. And they do say, well, we we understand that that's how a Dalai Lama thinks of things, but we want a better life for our children. And he has to say, well, that's not guaranteed. But in in the long run, what you do in the short term has consequences. So please be careful what you do every day of your life. And finally, the world as a whole and the human family will reap the benefits of that. Pico R, you're not a Buddhist, but you have studied Buddhism, right? Well, no. And, you know, I think for me it was very important to write a book about the Dalai Lama as a non-Buddhist, addressing non-Buddhists as well as Buddhists, because I think in some ways part of his particular power and fascination is that he speaks to everyone, whether you're a Catholic or a Maoist or an anti-Buddhist or an atheist. I think I think of him really as a doctor of the mind. And as with any doctor and any patient, at some level, the religion is unimportant. The most important thing is whether the medicine he's prescribing helps you or not. And I've found in my own life as a non-Buddhist and even worse as a journalist, uh, so many of the things he said make absolute sense. And he, he often tells people in the West, don't, don't take up Buddhism, study within your own traditions. But nonetheless, you may have things you can learn from me as I've come to these ideas through the Buddhist tradition. Even though you're not a Buddhist, I'm going to ask you to explain <laughs> a Buddhist concept in your book mm-hmm. because you talk about the difference between ultimate reality and conventional reality. Mm-hmm. Talk about the difference and how the Dalai Lama hangs out in ultimate reality. How does that impact how he views China? That's a beautiful question. No one's ever asked me that. And I would say that from my point of view, that may, itself may not be a Buddhist uh, notion. I think mm, Christian monks may also hang out in ultimate reality. But yours is a wonderful question. And I think that partly has to do, again, with seeing things in the long term and that not being caught up in the moment by moment. In the context of China, he always says that China and Tibet, one way or another, will always be neighbors. So whatever Tibet does has to take the welfare of the Chinese into consideration and vice versa. And I think he genuinely sees the whole world as a single body. And it's as if China were the right hand or right arm and Tibet were the left arm. And you need each to function and each one needs the other. And it makes no sense for your right hand to punch your left arm or your left hand to punch your right arm. Uh, you will, both parts will function most happily if they're in accord. And to bring this closer to home, I sometimes think about um, how he he's speaking really about neighborhood rather than enmity. And so if Let's say I, I'm going home tonight and I find that in my absence, my neighbor has flung a stone through my window. As I pick up a stone, tempted to re- retaliate, if I just stop for one minute and I think the minute I fling this stone back, it's certainly going to damage my neighbor's life. That's the intention probably. But it's also going to enrage and unsettle everyone in the neighborhood. And most of all, it's going to make my own life a misery. I'm going to just set into motion uh, a, a never-ending series of lawsuits and reprisals and and retributions and recriminations. And even if I'm only thinking of my own welfare, it makes more sense to to put the the stone down. 
And I think that's exactly what he's saying both to the Tibetans and to the Chinese. Your welfare depends on one another. So nurture each other. Um, and it sounds very simple put like that. But I think from him, for him it comes from this very elaborate vision of the world as entirely interconnected. And interestingly, that is a Buddhist vision. But nowadays in the global era, it's the vision all of us can palpably, visibly see as the reality we live in. What happens in China does affect us in, in California. Um, the famous butterfly effect really is happening and, and informing our lives across the planet. But if the Dalai Lama does eight hours of meditation a day, that's got to be impacting his consciousness. Absolutely. And doesn't that impact how he sees reality? Yes. In a way that other people can't see. Uh, no, that's absolutely right. And I think that meditation comes out in many ways, but the two most obvious fruits are in his remarkable power of attention and in his great, absolutely instinctive compassion. Uh, and anyone who meets the Dalai Lama or sees the Dalai Lama will notice that as he walks into an auditorium and there are 6,000 people there, he'll make contact with everyone at the entrance, every last bodyguard, every last volunteer who's showing people to his seats. He'll try to shake their hands. He'll make eye-to-eye -eye contact, and he'll really feel, you really feel as if he's giving you his full attention at that moment. And the other, I think, complementary aspect of his meditation is that he always says that a large part of his meditation is about compassion. And that means that uh, I noticed this four days ago. I was spending time with him, and I was taking my mother to see him. And as soon as he meets two people or six people, he seems instinctively to sense what that person most needs and what will make that person most comfortable. I remember even I, I happened to go and intrude on him the day after he won the Nobel Prize in 1989. Uh, and the minute he saw me, he grabbed me by the hand, took me into another room. And as we went to that other room, the first 45 seconds of the room, in the room, was spent with him trying to find a chair in which I would be comfortable, as if I were the Nobel laureate and he were the intrusive journalist. And it wasn't as if he was stopping to think, I have to be considerate or I have to be thoughtful or I have to be kind. Uh, that is as a second nature to him as breathing. And so when he comes into a room with a very young journalist who knows nothing about the world, all he's thinking about is how can I make that young journalist comfortable. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're exploring the Dalai Lama in our times. More with our guests, Pico Iyer and Dr. Robert Thurman, after a short break. Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, has been producing programs since 2003. 
You can hear the entire archive of our series and learn how you can contribute to keep the series going by visiting our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. Today's program is called The Dalai Lama in Our Times. We're speaking with Pico Iyer, author of The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama, and to Dr. Robert Thurman, author of the book Why the Dalai Lama Matters, His Act of Truth as the Solutions for China, Tibet, and the World. Here's more of Suzanne Kreider's conversation with Dr. Robert Thurman. In your most recent book, Why the Dalai Lama Matters, you outline his proposed solution with China. Give us an overview of his suggested solution. Well, his suggested solution is based on the practical reality of the Tibetan plateau and the truth of the Tibetan situation, which is that um, the Tibetan people are not Chinese and never have been, and they are not likely to be. The Tibetan plateau is an average altitude of almost three miles, and it can't be colonized effectively by people who grew up at sea level as they get sick in a year or two. And so it's really China's campaign to sort of genocide the Tibetans and fill the place with Chinese because the presence of the Tibetans embarrassingly shows that actually they don't really have a right to be in Tibet. This is not working, and they're going to have to rely on the Tibetans to manage Tibet. But the ingeniousness of the Dalai Lama's solution is that because he believes in nonviolence and dialogue, he realizes that the Chinese have a need to own Tibet by now, They've been telling themselves that they should own it, and they had some relationship with it in the past because of their mutual interest in Buddhism. And so he's willing to let Tibet be part of China as long as there's a genuine internal autonomy, and they stop trying to destroy the Tibetan people by assimilating them, and they stop trying to colonize it and ruining the environment, therefore, because Tibetan, the high plateau, cannot stand a you know, an intensive population, it, uh, it doesn't support it sustainably. And it's very important that Tibet be preserved in a pristine environmental condition because the headwaters of all the major rivers of Asia rise there, nurturing the lives of 4 billion people, 3.7 billion. So he makes this offer to uh, get them what they want, which is legitimate sovereignty in Tibet, which they don't have just by the mere fact of invading, And by having sycophantic diplomats pretend that their invasion is fine, they don't have the legitimate sovereignty. But he's willing to give it to them if they will give the Tibetans autonomy in their own environment and let the Tibetans run Tibet for the Chinese. And then they will run it for the Chinese, and it will be very profitable as a tourist destination, and they will restore the environment, and it will help the ecology of China and India and Southeast Asia because all the rivers come from Tibet. And so he has a very practical solution and very space-saving. In a way, you could say that the ruler of China who decides to make friends with the Dalai Lama could be like an international hero and celebrity like Gorbachev, and yet they wouldn't have to lose any territory like Gorbachev did have to. Remember, Gorbachev lost the Ukraine, Baltic states, and Kazakhstan, and the Soviet Union collapsed, you know. So China wouldn't have to collapse. They could actually keep everything and really keep it in a peaceful and harmonious way, which is what they say they want. So the Dalai Lama has a great offer for the Chinese. He wants to befriend them, be their ambassador, be their friend. And uh, it's only self-defeating that the Chinese are staying the course of a kind of domineering and, you know, communist expansionist sort of policy in Tibet, when really they could work much more cooperatively in a kind of federated union. What's a good lesson that our listeners can learn from those Tibetan people who have been tortured? I think the Dalai Lama's basic message, which is 
you know, world peace through inner peace. In other words, it's sort of a new way, you know, like, for example, um, we had a century ago, there were a lot of violent revolutions, you know, because the elite were too, you know, the Bernie Madoffs of that era were just too high and mighty and the people were too poor. And so you had this communist revolutions and things like that. Then the revolutionary people, because they got to their new power by violence, they were even worse, Stalin and Lenin and Mao, and they killed many tens of millions of people. And so, you know, we have a new thing now where the revolutions are, are going to have to be like the Eastern European one, like the Russian one, which are peaceful, where people just simply say no to more coercion and more violence. And eventually, when everybody gets up and says no, then it's over. You know, then they can't uh, they can't maintain it, the, the militarists and the the dictators, you know, they can't stand against the people saying no, even though they're saying it in a happy and peaceful way like they did in Eastern Europe. They just have to withdraw the military. I mean, we've seen miracles in our time. The withdrawal of the Soviet Union from Eastern Europe and the withdrawal of the apartheid government from dominating the black majority in South Africa, those are two miraculous things. They are completely unprecedented. And that's the kind of thing we're going to see in the case of Tibet and China. And the lesson to be drawn from among all of us is that when we get angry with the horrible people and yet not hate any of the people we're opposing, try to be friendly to them and yet firmly resisting them. This is the new thing. So the lesson people can learn is be happy in their own mind, find peace in themselves, don't be angry even in the bad, with the bad guys, but within, in a cheerful way, resist them and see to it that the happy people you know, are, are the ones in charge. That's Dr. Robert Thurman. And now again, Pico Iyer with Suzanne Kreider. Pico, it's almost as if the Dalai Lama is like a football coach who doesn't care if his team loses. And, and not only that, it's like he wants his team to merge with the opposing team, China. I just don't think that most people understand this kind of mindset because they want a winner and a loser. So what can our listeners learn from his approach? I don't think I, – I, I think – I don't see him as a coach who doesn't care if uh, his his team loses. I see him more as a coach who's very anxious for his team to win but as you were saying in the second part of your question, knows that if his team wins, the other team wins. Uh, and I suppose that's a way of saying he doesn't see the world as us versus them. He sees it entirely as we. And so in the China-Tibet situation, for example, what he's always stressing is that common ground where – whatever benefits Tibet inevitably benefits China and vice versa. For example, he says from the Tibetan point of view, and he's a rare Tibetan to say this, I'm delighted um, that China is developing so quickly and I'm delighted that Beijing held the Olympic Games and it should have held the Olympic Games and it's, a, it's an important power and it should be brought into the community of nations. And he often says every Tibetan stands to gain from China's progress, even the high-speed train that China um, has recently set up to link Tibet to the rest of China, and which many Tibetans are very concerned about. He says, well, that's really a sign of progress. Uh, so we Tibetans delight in the way that China is gaining. And China, I hope, will delight in our particular benefits, which are that this rich, ancient, deep uh, spiritual tradition, which can help the Chinese, in fact, can help the Chinese more than any other people on the planet because most Chinese individuals have been de denied any spiritual guidance for 60 years. So uh, he would never see the world in terms of a competition, but he would always see it in terms of a collaboration. And again, that sense of interdependence, if you do see China as your right arm and 
uh, Tibet as your left arm, there's almost nothing that would happen that would be a victory for one and a loss for the other. Either they win together or they lose together. And if the whole world is a single body, which is how he sees it, then the whole world really um, stands to gain from anything that that, that helps the entire body, that if you have a stomachache and take care of your stomach, that's going to help your, your heart and your mind and, uh, and, and your, your legs to be motivated to walk and that uh, nobody can be the loser if one part of your body is feeling better. Some people say it's too late. What do you think? Is it too late to save Tibet? No, uh, because anything could happen at any moment. Uh, as everybody knows, uh, even as Tibet has been diminished within that space called Tibet on the map, it's become part of the global neighborhood, that Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan culture and uh, Tibetan traditions are more vibrant in Paris and Sydney and Los Angeles uh, than, than they were 20 years ago, and they weren't even heard of, really, in those places 50 years ago. Uh, it's, I always remember that two of the Dalai Lama's closest friends are Desmond Tutu and Vaclav Havel, uh, Desmond Tutu woke up one day and although the most respected spiritual presence in his country, South Africa, he'd never been able to vote for 62 years under the system of apartheid. Suddenly, it seems to us almost out of nowhere, apartheid was lifted, Nelson Mandela uh, became president and the whole situation in, in, in South Africa transformed for many of its people. Uh, Vaclav Havel was in prison one day in 1989 Eight weeks later, he was unanimously chosen as the president of Czechoslovakia. And I think it's easy to forget that this Dalai Lama is the single most seasoned political ruler on the planet. He's been in charge of his people now for 69 years. And in the course of 69 years, he has seen the unimaginable happen again and again. Wars break out, people landing on the moon, revolutions that are stilled in a second, revolutions that are sparked the next day. Uh, and he knows, just as his Buddhist teaching tells him, that nothing is permanent. Uh, in the 1980s, there were two of the highest Chinese leaders were... Um, actually apologized for what had been done to Tibet and were well on the way to releasing uh, Tibet from its suffering when Tiananmen Square uprising happened and both of them got purged because of that and suddenly Tibet's hopes which were rising uh, were pushed on the back burner. But he's well aware that there were many, many Chinese individuals in China and elsewhere who care as much about Tibet as many people in the West do. And whenever any of those people is in a position of power, things are going to be much, much better for, um, for the Tibetans. Uh, certainly what he's seen in the last 13 months has, I think, really shocked, shocked him and, and saddened him as, as almost nothing that I've been aware of in the last 30 years. But uh, he knows that that's not going to last. And at any moment, that trajectory will turn. Dr. Thurman, Western culture has the archetype of a bully. And when you encounter a bully, what you're supposed to do is fight back. You're supposed to confront them. Yes. But you've been talking about how the Dalai Lama, through his meditation, has really released this fixation on revenge. Yes. It seems like Westerners really can't get that concept of merging with the oppressor, as he suggests Tibet and China should merge. Right. Explain what the Dalai Lama's consciousness is like so that he can be at peace with the idea of merging? Well, his consciousness is intelligent, actually. <laughs> it's what it is. 
and it isn't exclusively Eastern, and it isn't exclusively some otherworldly consciousness. It is simply the intelligent consciousness that recognizes the state of the world and the state of technology and the state of and the state of politics at this time. We are on a planetary situation where everybody is under threat. The climate itself is under threat. We're at war with nature. We're at war with other species. And we cannot afford wars with each other anymore. We have to work together and we have to put that kind of resources that have been devoted to militarism into restoring and creating sustainable life for, base for people. And that just simply has to happen or forget it. You know, we're, we're, we're toast, as they say, you know. It seems like some people are impatient, though. The Dalai Lama seems so patient, but you hear people say prayer isn't enough. I know, you hear them say that, but let me tell you this. The people who are saying prayers are not good enough and you have to fight, they've been fighting, and it's still unsettled. So in a way, the people who are impatient and going violent are also not getting anywhere. So people say, well, Dalai Lama's been 50 years, 60 years, and the Chinese are still oppressing the Tibetans, and his nonviolence, where is it getting you? Even some young Tibetans are saying that. But they should look at the violent resistance movements around the world today. They're not getting anywhere either. Nobody's getting anywhere, you know, is the point, you know. And you don't win wars anymore, and violence doesn't work anymore. So so nonviolence is sort of a new idea, maybe, in international politics, and so it will take more time and more study, but, but in fact it will work, and it is working. And then right now you have the amazing phenomenon, if you know well the Tibet-China situation, which few people really do, but if you know it well... You have the amazing phenomenon of the sort of supposedly all-powerful rulers of China, the nine-member Politburo Standing Committee, who are sitting around terrified of one little Buddhist monk who runs around. They're just desperately trying to stamp his visa canceled in every country he goes. They're frightened of him. They're frightened of their own people's religion. They're arresting, you know, Taoist uh, practitioners who are doing a little qigong in this, you know, and, and tai chi in the street. You know, nice, peaceful people who were not threatening anybody, and they're torturing and persecuting them. They're afraid of the Pope. I mean, they're, and they're, they're just in a state of complete embattlement while they're supposed to be very, very powerful. And whereas the Dalai Lama is relaxed and pleasant and friendly, he has supposedly no power, he has no country, but he's actually a happy person in spite of his suffering, you know, the suffering of his people, which he's very upset about and he speaks out against, but personally he's quite happy. And uh, I've been in Tibet and seen Tibetans who had their teeth knocked out and have suffered and this and that, and they are actually not bitter. And in the daily do- doing, even though they're suffering, then they're unhappy with that, And they, but they're basically happy people. They feel happy. You know, They feel good inside themselves. Whereas their oppressors who are beating on them and torturing them in prisons, if you look at their faces, they're all distorted and contorted with fear and irritation and and a horrible thing, because the human being's conscience really makes them unhappy when they act in a nasty manner. Dr. Robert Thurman, author of the 2008 book, Why the Dalai Lama Matters. We'll hear more from him and from author Pico Iyer, author of The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. We're exploring the Dalai Lama in our times today on Peace Talks Radio. I'm Paul Ingalls, back in a minute with more.
I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, looking at peacemaking throughout history and in our lives today. Sometimes we try to make a connection between the two, like today, as we look at the story and nonviolent philosophy of the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet, its political and spiritual leader, 1989 Nobel Peace Prize winner. We're exploring what application his story can have to our lives today. Here, the Dalai Lama is heard on a panel at Seattle's 2008 Seeds of Compassion Conference, talking about how science and education can lead the way to greater compassion between beings on the planet. Now, I think the hopeful sign is um, more and more people, mainly from the scientific community, now is showing deeper realization of deeper reality. I think that's really hopeful sign. So religious people, thousand years repeat these things, but effect limited. <laughs> we are not much using common sense, right? <laughs> but rather you see God or Buddha like that, it's okay, <laughs> no harm, <laughs> but effect limited, <laughs> I think. I'm Buddhist. Of course, I have, you see, certain my own practice, that's confidential. I don't share with you. <laughs> but, but, but I usually, you see, the, uh, t- the telling or sharing with people, public, without touch, religious belief. That I deliberately, you see, describe secular, secular way. I think we really need that. A certain training, I think we really need. From birth, we already have the capacity. Now further nurturing that. Society means person who come from that. Same. Leadership also come from that. Nothing, nothing different. Even those like Hitler, or Bin Laden, or Stalin, or German Moore, when they are <laughs> children, child, same capacity. They grown up under their mother's kindness. So even these people, later, due to certain circumstances, some cases political power, then these persons become arrogant. But basic human nature level, same, isn't it? Mm. So education and environment really makes differences. So now their education is, I feel, very, very important. The Dalai Lama in Seattle in 2008. Our host, Suzanne Kreider, is talking with Buddhist scholar, author, and friend of the Dalai Lama, Dr. Robert Thurman. Also another friend of the Dalai Lama, journalist and author, Pico Iyer. Pico Iyer, it seems a little contradictory because the Dalai Lama is saying, you don't need to practice Buddhism. That's my religion. It's nobody's business. But how in the world are our listeners going to become as attentive and as compassionate as the Dalai Lama through secular practices or some other kind of religious practice? I think just being uh, mindful. And I think part of the beauty of the Dalai Lama is, as with any doctor, what he's really doing is distilling his wisdom into very concrete, everyday, indeed, secular uh, principles. For example, he told me uh, a few years ago, well, every day, you're not a Buddhist, you're just a journalist, but every day when you're taking a shower in the morning, why don't you think about what you're going to be doing and 
whom you're going to be meeting in that day, and train positive or compassionate thoughts in their direction now. It certainly can't hurt you or them, and perhaps it will change the quality of your day. Perhaps it won't, in which case nothing is lost. But when when I met him uh, the day of the Nobel Prize, I remember as our conversation was finished, we were walking out of the room and we were going to the front door and suddenly he said, oh, I've forgotten something. And he went back and he turned off the lights in the room. And he said to me, it's such a simple thing. It, it's, it's not a religious thing. It's not a, a huge thing that's going to change the world. But if a few people, a few times every day, remember this very simple, practical act, that our planet will be in a healthier state. And it's interesting because I say that now, and it's been 20 years since that moment. And in those 20 years, I feel as if I've read so many books by wise men, and I've been lucky enough to meet many, many intelligent and, and, and enlightened people. And I, I've come upon great inspirations by myself. And alas, none of those ideas has stuck. But that simple practical thing of turning off the light, I remember from that one moment and probably every day for the last 20 years, there are a few times each day when I'm leaving a room and I think, oh, wait a minute, no harm in just going back and turning off the light. And I think that's the way that his his wisdom uh, incarnates itself, as it were, in the world. And, and I think that's one reason why he's become such a member of the uh, of the planet and why so many people are happy to claim him as their spiritual friend or advisor. Because, as you were saying, uh, this, this has nothing to do with steeping yourself in intricate texts or meditating or doing all the things that it's difficult for us non-monastics to do. It's just uh, being aware of things. And uh, that any one of us can, can do a little better any day. The Dalai Lama has doubts about his effectiveness. You said that even after winning the Nobel Peace Prize, he said to you, I really wonder if my efforts are enough. Mm. Well, I think part of what is involved in walking the open road is that there are no guarantees. Uh, and I think one of the great lessons the Dalai Lama teaches, which all of us, again, can learn from, is to say, I don't know. People will often ask him what's going to happen 20 years from now to China, to Tibet, to the world. And he says, I'm not a fortune teller. I, I, I don't have some magical property inside myself that allows me to see how the world is going to be even two years from now. Uh, I don't know. All we can do is try our hardest and remain ready so that whatever the situation is, we can work with it against, rather than pushing against it. And we can find the best potential within that situation uh, and uh, within ourselves. Uh, but the other thing to, to bear in mind is, uh, well, he knows that his policy is the only realistic one. Uh, I know in, in recent times, many people within the Tibetan community and within the world community have been saying, why isn't he more confrontational with, with China? China is so intractable and uh, he has gained no ground at all in his 50 years of holding to the path of nonviolence and forbearance. Why doesn't he try something else? Uh, and I think the fact of the matter is his first responsibility is to protect the six million in Tibet. And he knows that anything more confrontational is going to bring more suffering on them, more suffering on the Han Chinese in Tibet and outside, that the Beijing government traditionally, historically for many centuries, hasn't taken well to outside prompting or to people outside China telling them what to do. Uh, and I think it's his very practicality that tells him that ultimately, if you care about the destiny of Tibet, the course of nonviolence is the only way to protect the Tibetans. And the final thing that must be said uh, in, in this context, I just wrote a long piece for the New York Review of Books 
uh, starting with uh, the Dalai Lama saying, as he's been saying recently, that his policy has failed. Uh, last time I saw him in November, we spent a week together, and over and over he said, my policy has achieved nothing, it's failed. I want to turn to other Tibetans to come up with alternative ideas. And I think the reason he was saying that was as much as anything to goad his fellow Tibetans to take more responsibility for their destinies. In some ways, I think when he says he's failing or that his policy has failed, what he's really trying to do is to prepare the Tibetan people for the time when he's no longer around and, in fact, to help them through the transition. So, as it were, to coach them into how to um, act after he's dead while he's alive. He's doing exactly what any parent should do uh, with his children. And by saying he's failed, he's essentially putting the responsibility onto the Tibetans and saying, um, you face the situation and you think of a good response to it, as I know you can and, uh, and you will. And I think the one predicament of the Tibetan people, both for the Dalai Lama and for the people themselves, is that all these years, because of the ritual power of the Dalai Lama, whom they regard as an incarnation of a god, um, the Tibetans have been very happy to leave really all decision-making to the Dalai Lama. And that's relatively okay because this Dalai Lama is such a seasoned leader, but uh, he's not going to be around forever and he knows that he almost has to force his people to be true Democrats and to take power into their own hands rather than to defer to his authority. I know one of the things I've, I've loved that he's been saying recently is people will often come and ask him for their, his blessing and he says, blessings come from yourself. There's nothing I can give you that you don't have inside yourself already. So blessings are really the result of our actions. If you act responsibly and kindly, to the people around you, that generates blessings. So please don't look to me for blessings, but look to yourself. And you have a much greater power than you could begin to understand. And that's one reason why he always stresses his humanity. Every time he delivers a lecture before a large audience, one of the first things he says is, I'm nothing special. You won't get any magic or miracles for me. I'm just a human being dealing with the same challenges and sometimes sorrows as you are. Uh, and if you see anything worthwhile in me, that's just a reflection of a capacity you have within yourself. He's traveling really to remind us of our power rather than to tell us about his power. Pico Iyer, what's the most surprising thing about the Dalai Lama? Maybe uh, that he's a realist. Uh, as you know, I've, I've been a, a journalist now for 27 years for Time magazine. And so as a journalist, um, part of my job is meeting politicians. And it took me a while to realize that, to my own surprise, uh, the single most clear-sighted and realistic political leader I'd ever met was the Dalai Lama. I think most politicians I know love to talk about that never-never land that's the future or love to talk about the past, which essentially can't be changed. And the Dalai Lama was the only one I knew who was looking almost like a scientist through a microscope at the present moment to see what could be done with it uh, or first to see what it consists of and then to see what could be done with it. And for those of your listeners who've heard him uh, deliver talks before large audiences, they'll know that he often says, dream nothing. Don't dream or hope or pray for some miraculous resolution to your situations. Just do what you can right now to make the lives of the people around you and therefore your own life better. And, and I think he's applied that principle every moment of his own life. Pico Iyer, to sum up in brief, what do you most want our listeners to remember about the Dalai Lama? Uh, that his particular power is that he's the first Dalai Lama in history to spend so much of his time with non-Buddhists, like people like ourselves. 
And therefore, I think his great gift is to speak to everyone as a human being uh, and to tell them that he's leaving his Buddhism behind to some extent, even though it's the central point of all his thinking. And when he comes to the United States to talk to us, he's coming uh, to some extent as a doctor and to some extent as a friend and certainly as a fellow human being, just offering what he has learned from his experience. Uh, he always stresses his mortality and his humanity, his humility. And I think that's exactly where his power lies. Most leaders are so eager to tell us that they're more qualified than we are. Uh, he's a rare leader who says um, that that he is just a reflection of something inside ourselves and that we have much more in common with him than otherwise. Dr. Thurman, what do you most want people to remember about why the Dalai Lama matters? I want them to remember, most importantly, that we mustn't be discouraged by our own inherited and historically conditioned habits of thought, that the peaceful method will never work, it's too weak, the bad guys are always more powerful, and therefore we live a life of quiet desperation. Even if we logically think it would be so much more intelligent for people to be peaceful, we emotionally think they're just always going to be bullying and brutish and nasty, and we're always going to lose, and we're going to be beat up if we, if we relax. So I think that's the wrong, despaired way of going, and it, and it, leads to, it empowers too much the obsolete dinosaurs of the militaristic types, the Pentagon types, and we have to have hope, and we have to be happy and realize that, that it's a new age, and the teachings of Buddha and Jesus are finally essential, realistic to be listened to. And we have to listen to them. And Muhammad, too, in his early period, he was also teaching peace in the same way. So Islam has this at its heart as well. And secularist humanism also doesn't want violence. So, so we have to be hopeful and cheerful and not allow ourselves to be depressed and not excuse ourselves uh, from being activists and energetically demanding peace from our leadership and writing those congressmen and writing those senators and really putting the, you know, as as old LBJ used to say, if the bad guys don't want to see the light, make sure they feel the heat of our vocal but cheerful, not hateful, but cheerful protest and cheerful resistance. This is what I want people to remember. The Dalai Lama stands for that. World peace through inner peace. Be happy, be hopeful, visualize success through peaceful means and work for it energetically and don't be cynical and then just drop out and be apathetic and de and, and living in quiet desperation as Thoreau called it. That's what I'd like them to take away from why the Dalai Lama matters. Because he is the one who represents that he matters because he kindles that feeling in us and he represents that as a living, breathing, intelligent, friendly person. Buddhist scholar and friend of the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet, Dr. Robert Thurman, author of the 2008 book, Why the Dalai Lama Matters, His Act of Truth as the Solutions for China, Tibet, and the World. Suzanne Kreider also spoke with Pico Iyer, journalist, friend of the Dalai Lama, and author of the book, The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. You can hear Suzanne Kreider's complete interviews with both authors, as well as the entire talk by the Dalai Lama in Seattle in April of 2008 plus other audio, video, links, and resources all about the Dalai Lama at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Also at that site, you can order CDs, sign up for a podcast, and a monthly newsletter. It's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit organization that produces Peace Talks Radio and keeps talk of peacemaking alive on the air and on the web. 
We also had support from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Special thanks to the Seeds of Compassion Conference in Seattle. Our theme was written and performed by Allie Adelman. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to Peace Talks Radio.